So yeah, you uh, you're doing Rusty Pilot seminars like what a, at least one a month. It seems like maybe I'm exaggerating, but that's what it seems like you're doing. I believe I've done ten this year, and and I used to be up around twelve. But they try and I mean we do a fair amount, but they try and limit us so that we don't get worn out. It really is a fair amount of work. You know, I did one Saturday, and I I love it, and they're very productive. They really work. But as you can imagine, standing up in front of an audience for three to four hours, talking in a way that engages and keeps them focused is not a casual experience. No. I'm guessing that that takes uh, – well, I'm guessing because of that, because there's so – like it's so labor intensive, especially for that three to four hours, there's probably not a lot of people that can do it well. I don't know. I mean, we're really lucky. At AOPA, the ambassadors do it. We have a a small group of contractors who do it as well, all experienced CFIs, all people who are really good on their feet. And, you know, one of the things I've really enjoyed, and and I mean this in all sincerity, I've never worked with an organization where people were more mission-oriented. Nobody punches out because it's 5 o'clock. Nobody says, hey, that's not in my job description. I don't do that. It it really is a, a remarkable thing, and because of that, you feel really motivated to go out and do the best job you possibly can. Excellence breeds excellence. Yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's a more succinct <laughs> way of putting it. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so what are you flying these days? I am flying the Cessna 152 that AOPA gave me. Uh, I was in a flying club with a 182. I recently left that because I'm on a board for another flying club, and I'm working with the high school here in town to help them form uh, a flying club of their own so the students have something to fly. And in all honesty, for all my gifts and magical prowess, I can't manage three clubs at the same time. So I I had to back off. So it's just the 152 right now, and my wife and I have been talking. I kind of wouldn't mind a Stinson 108. Nice. Um, I flew one years ago in Connecticut. I really liked it. They're fairly inexpensive. Uh, They do take maintenance because they're old, but I, I miss flying a tail dragger quite a bit. How do you like the 152, the auto lander? You know, I will tell you the truth. There was a time in my career where I couldn't wait to get out of them because I did a lot of my training in them. I worked as a CFI in them. I absolutely love this thing. Uh, Its only real drawback is the one I have has long-range tanks. It has 40-gallon tanks, and I weigh two and a quarter. So with full tanks and me and my flight bag, I have about 35 pounds left. So I I can't take somebody else. But if I'm careful and, and watch what I do with the fuel... I take kids on familiarization flights, high school kids, let them yeah. have their first flight experience. I love that airplane. I really do. As long as you respect its limitations, mm-hmm. and you know, like every airplane, it has them. It's a terrific thing. And I just flew it up to Pensacola and back. That's a pretty good hop. And that's not the farthest you've flown it. You flew it to, what, Alabama or somewhere before? I've been to Gulf Shores, Alabama in it. I've been down, uh, not all the way to the Keys, but I've been down to southeast Florida. I've, I've been up to St. Simons Island, Georgia with it. Oh, there you I've, go. I've covered some ground. It's been a wonderful airplane. And it's, it's a gorgeous plane, too. It looks great. 
Thank you. I get a lot of compliments on it, and I had nothing to do with that, but I tell people all the time, it's the only 152 I've ever flown where everything in it works. <laughs> That's true. Almost, yeah. everyone I've, almost everyone I've ever flown, something's, got, something's in up on it. Darn right. But no, this one's absolutely wonderful. It, it's great. Um, and I have a Garmin 650 in the panel, so I've got really, really good navigational information. Wow. I can fly at IFR. I tend not to because, you know, hand flying a 152 in IMC on an approach is a workload and a half. Sure. So I, I tend to just stick with VFR with it. Dave, I don't know if I told you, I saw Jamie at a uh, Southern Fun and uh, he had the 152 was there on a, on a raised platform. It was up on, it was up on a, up it on was a stand. A yeah. with, with multicolored lights beaming down on it <clears throat> from yeah. every direction. And I asked him, "Is this is this how your hanger looks?" <laughs> he said, "Yes." <laughs> he well, says, that, "In there's fact, there's only one way to answer that question." He said, "In fact, they even have a lift that lifts me all the way up and slides me inside the door." <laughs> and I was telling one of the girls that worked there later on, and she says, "Of course he does." <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. <clears throat> I'm a very lucky guy. There's no doubt about it. Welcome to Logbook Memories, an aviation podcast about remembering and sharing our past flights. I'm David Allen, a student pilot. And I'm Michael Ladd, a private pilot. Guests on Logbook Memories look back through their pilot logbook to find a particularly interesting, adventurous, enjoyable, scary, or otherwise memorable flight. Then they come on here and share the story of that flight in their own words. Our next guest is ready to go, so let's mic him up. Our guest this week is Jamie Beckett, and if you have never met him, it's kind of surprising because he's kind of ubiquitous. He is the You Can Fly ambassador for the state of Florida uh, for AOPA. He also writes for AOPA on occasion, writes for General Aviation News uh, more regularly. You can check out his content there. Uh, he's a CFI, a CFII, MEI with more hours than he can count. He's also an A&P and a Part 107 certified uh, remote UAV pilot. And on top of all that, he's a musician. <laughs> J- Jamie, welcome to Logbook Memories. Thanks, David, Mike. I appreciate it. It's fun to be here with you. Glad to have you. It's glad to have you, man. You uh you're you get around. Like you have you have the job that I really want, and that's Everybody flying wants. this Cessna 152, this reimagined Cessna 152 around and just showing off aviation and how cool it can be. If you like general aviation, I absolutely have the greatest job going. There's five of us around the country, ambassadors for AOPA. Um, Case Underland's in Southern California, Pat Brown's in Texas, Andy Miller's in the Great Lakes region, and Norm Eisler's up in New York and into New England. And you're absolutely right. We have the greatest job in the world because we just get to go out and motivate people and inspire them and help them reach their general aviation goals. You can't beat it. What does that job look like? I mean, what are you doing? When How, how does it manifest itself? Well, actually, each of us kind of has carte blanche to accomplish specific goals, and and we do have certain goals. For instance, the Rusty Pilot Program, we each ter- teach a certain number of those per year, um, and we all tend to go over the minimum. We really enjoy that. Uh, the thing I'm most intrigued with these days actually is AOPA STEM high school curriculum because there are a dozen schools in Florida using it. I get to interact with those schools and the teachers. Um, 
I'm on a board of directors of a, a flying club that works with the high school. I, I work closely with the folks down in Sebring. I'm helping the folks here in Winterhaven. Those kids start a flying club so they have access. You know, just the, the ability to get in there and mix it up and do whatever needs to be done to get people where they want to be. That's a that's a remarkable gift, and I'll be forever grateful for Mark Baker for putting us on this path and giving us the freedom to go out and do this work. I don't know how that conversation got started, but I, I want to talk to that person because it sounds <laughs> like, oh, hey, let's uh, let's put some people who like to fly in airplanes and let them do whatever they want to encourage other people to get excited about the thing that they're excited about. Like, I mean, how did that conversation go? And specifically, what was the conversation like when, when you were offered this this you can fly ambassador position because i mean that just sounds to me like uh, the best job ever well actually the, the ambassadors talk about it we get together a couple times a year up at headquarters i was the first hire uh, when you can fly started i was the first person brought on board to do this and it was a very interesting conversation because there was a concept but we hadn't developed all the materials yet so it was really jumping into the deep end of the pool because as with any startup, you have to make it work or it dies. And uh, we've put in an enormous amount of effort. And I'm not saying we deserve all the credit by any means. There are other people, other organizations. But AOPA has done remarkable work on this front. And the ambassadors really do carry quite a load. And I'm very proud to be associated with them. But I'll tell you, after decades and decades of the pilot numbers slipping ever downward, in 2017 and 2018, they went up. So there is an actual benefit to this. You know, the Rusty Pilots, we're, um, we've literally got thousands of people back flying again. I just taught one two days ago. I'm teaching another one this Saturday up in Jacksonville. I mean, people come from significant distances to go through these courses and go out with the confidence after 20, 30 years, realizing, I can do this. I can get back in the left seat. This will work out. It's great. My dad, after not having flown for 25 years, is back in the pilot seat, too. And I'm just, like, super awesome. excited. So you guys are doing a great job. Like, well, good keep for Keep these things going. Like, I love it. I think it's amazing. And I, there's always room for more. And I, that's a statistic that I hadn't heard, that we have more pilots now than we did before. That is very, very encouraging because the pilot numbers have been on decline for years. Oh, long, long time. Long time. And for a lot of understandable reasons. But it is turning around. And I, I genuinely believe from the depths of my soul with the success of the Rusty Pilot Program, with the success of flying clubs, which bring down the cost of flying and increase the social benefit to being involved in general aviation, to the high school program, which is going to expose tens of thousands of kids to aviation as a hobby or a vocation. I think we're at the beginning of something really remarkable. I believe that. I really do. Uh, at, at being part of this, we're going to get into some, by the way, audience, don't, don't, don't shy away. We're going to get into some flying stories here shortly, but, um, as a, as a, you can fly ambassador, what's the thing that maybe surprised you the most, the thing that you, you didn't expect to happen that just kind of like, Whoa, I didn't, that that's an interesting benefit. I had no idea that that was a problem or that that was going to come up out of this. It, it's actually a human thing. One of the reasons I really respect and admire Mark Baker is that putting this program together, um, and a woman named Katie Pribble was really driving the train on this, and she's the one who hired me. 
when they put people out into the field with that carte blanche, do what you have to do to make something happen. It took a while for people to realize that was honest. And even today, I still get people. I, I was up at Leeward Air Ranch recently doing a presentation. We're out at dinner and people are saying, hey, what do you do for a living? And I'm, this. And they're like, no, no. I mean, when you're not doing this, what's your job? <laughs> this. This is what I do all the time. But people just by nature don't want to be thought to be ignorant. They don't want to be embarrassed. They don't want to admit, I don't know how to do this, or I don't know what the rules are on that. It probably took a year, a year and a half before people started realizing we're serious. We're, we're not here to laugh at you. We're not here to, you know, poke somebody in the ribs and say, can you believe he asked that question? I don't care what your interest is, because if you don't come from an aviation family, you don't have any idea how to get through the fence. I'll, I'll give you a good example. Um, I worked with an airport director who had a high school administration team come down to the airport to talk about how they might adopt uh, an aerospace curriculum for their students and, and let them get into engineering and maintenance and restoration and flying. I love and, that, by the way. I love those programs in high schools. Oh, thanks. I, I'm, I'm a huge fan. But th this entire administrative group, when we finished up, they were just effusive with, thank you so much for making arrangements for us to come to the airport. And, and you're almost beside yourself where it's a municipal facility. It's owned by the city you live in. It's got a restaurant. You're allowed to come here. But they see chain link. They see barbed wire. They see do not enter signs. They are really under the impression this is a high security area and only a certain group of people are allowed to go there. So being able to spend a good deal of my time going around talking to people and encouraging them to come. I, I hold a lot of lunch meetings at the airport restaurant. Come on down, see it, walk around, find out that it's okay to be here. You can just come down anytime, grab a rocking chair and a Coke and watch some landings. That's okay. Most people have no idea that's that's acceptable. I think by and large, um, well, I don't want to say by and large. I think a lot of airports don't do a great job of, of showcasing that. And my hat goes off to those that do. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I... I have occasions, not very often, but occasions to take people out on the flight line at my home airport. And, you know, I had to go through the rigmarole to get a badge, but my badge works and I mm -hmm. can tap it against the reader and walk out on the flight line and I can take people out there with me. And so anytime I have the opportunity to do that and to let somebody touch an airplane, it's very kinetic. Like once you touch an airplane, like it, it, it does something to you. And so being able to take somebody out and let them sit in the airplane. Oh, I can sit here. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, why don't you grab the yoke and turn? Let me, let me pull that, let me pull that, uh, that, that, that control lock out of there. And so you can actually see what happens to the control surfaces. And it's, it's so, um, impactful to somebody to actually get in touch with an airplane and a, a, a ramp where there's actual airplanes moving around and to see it actually work without having to be on on this side of the glass that's that's separated and you walk through a square people pipe out to your airplane you get injected <laughs> onto your airplane but right. you're never out there in the air with your aircraft and it's just you know it's <laughs> there's something about being out there with an airplane oh yeah well and, and i'll tell you i understand that feeling completely because i get to take high school kids on familiarization flights where they've, they've never been in an airplane very often. 
and I do my whole regular CFI thing. You know, I, I let them taxi out. And ironically, kids who don't drive taxi much better than kids who do and adults <laughs> because they're not, I can see that. they're not mistaking the yoke for a control device at that point. And, and, the, and, and, the, and the center line is a divider. And right, right. I had a lot of issues when I first started taxiing. Oh, sure, because the transfer of knowledge from driving to aviation, it, there's very little. It's, yeah. it's a completely different world. Once I got it, the drive home in my car was really interesting, though. <laughs> I'll bet. Well, I'll tell you, I have a, a standard thing, and I'm not shy about telling people, but you know, kids always think they're going on a ride. And when we get to the whole short line, I walk them through the run-up and tell them what we're doing and why. And I tell them we're going to get on the center line just like we did on the taxiway. And I said, you know, just follow me through on the controls. And I make sure their feet are way down on the rudder pedals so we're not dragging brakes. And they are so focused on looking out the window, looking at the gauges, you know, feeling what I'm doing. By the time we get to 200 feet, I generally have to point out to them, you know, I'm not doing this. You are. I'm, I'm not touching anything. <laughs> That is uh, awesome. The expression is just priceless, and I I love it. There's usually a little bit of a pitch wobble at that point, but then they realize, (laughs) oh, wait, there's no big deal. We're not going to hit anything. So it's great. It really is great because we come back from those flights, and I can honestly tell that kid, regardless, male, female, doesn't matter if they're tall, short, thin, fat, whatever, I I can say, you never have to wonder if you can fly. You just did. You just spent a half an hour doing it. All I did was help you with the takeoff and landing. Now it's like everybody else. You come out here and you spend your time trying to do it better. That's all. That's it. Hmm. Oh, what a cool story. I love so much that. That's awesome. Um, We'll talk about some more of your... uh uh, stuff that you do because there's a lot um but uh, right now you're flying the Cessna 152 that's the reimagined one can you tell us a little bit about that airplane yeah it's it's probably the most common airplane in America to tell you the truth it's very rare that i talk to people who have no experience in it mine is a 1980 version and by mine it i'm i'm entrusted with it but it belongs to AOPA it's my company car it's how i get around because i i'm based right in the center of the peninsula of Florida, but I cover from the Keys to St. Simons Island, Georgia, to Gulf Shores, Alabama. I just flew out to Pensacola and back in it, um, which is, as you know, about a nine-hour drive each way, but a three- to four-hour flight. Um, It's a great airplane. It's all redone. Uh, Aviat Aircraft did the whole thing over, and, and they'll do it for anybody. It's not a special favor for AOPA. If you call them up and say, hey, I'd love to have one of those, they'll find a donor aircraft and they'll redo it to the degree you want it done. But I'll tell you, it's like flying a brand new airplane. And uh, But it's a brand new airplane with a proven track record that goes back almost half a century. You know pretty much everything about it. I have tremendous confidence in them. I really like flying that plane. I think I think one of the features that makes your airplane fly the best is the uh, paint that they put on it because it is oh, the yeah. brightest yellow. <laughs> yes. You know, I was taxiing out at Lakeland once. I called ground control, and they, they cleared me off the ramp, but with the old tower, they couldn't see where I was because there was a, a line of trees. And when I broke the line of trees, ground control came back and said, are you the yellow Cessna? And I said, yes, sir. And the guy called back and says, you don't need a transponder if you're going to be that color. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, they're visible. You can see them from a good ways off. That's fantastic. Uh, What else do you fly? I know a couple of the airplanes you've flown in the past and a couple of the ones you've actually owned. Uh, Tell us about some of the other airplanes you've uh, flown, maybe some of your favorites. 
Well, my fir- the first airplane I ever owned was a 1963 Cessna 150, which I spent a whopping eleven thousand dollars on. Um, and it's not that it was that long ago, and and inflation kicked in. It's just uh, an older one with uh, ugly paint and a not too sparkly interior is not very expensive. They're great airplanes. Probably uh, the ones you're thinking of, my favorites as well. I had a 1940 J3 Cub that I absolutely loved. Um, there's a good video, a couple of videos on YouTube of Jason Shepard and I flying it. Um, and of course, now it lives with Jason. He bought it off me when I got an air camp that my dad had built. And unfortunately, he, he finished it enough that it was signed off, but he never actually flew it. He, he died. He had a shop accident and died. So I ended up taking that airplane and taking it down to Lockwoods where the where the kits sold and got it up to snuff and flew that for a year. And the new owner of it, I just got pictures. Somebody saw it in Colorado. It now has an enclosure on it so they can fly it in the cold weather. And I'll tell you, that was just a flat-out fun airplane. 200 horsepower on an airplane that weighs barely 1,500 pounds. It was just terrific. Yeah, I know you did a lot of flying in that. You, you you said you only had it for a year, but you flew that thing a lot in a year. So, yeah, and I I really like giving people rides. Uh, you know, one of the ones I remember most there was a, a woman who I took her husband flying, and he was really excited, wanted to learn to fly, and she was like, "Nope, not going to happen. That's not going to be part of our life." And it took over a year to get her out to the hangar, and by that time I had the air cam, and I have a couch in my hangar. Because, let's face it, you got to be comfortable. You should have a couch. Every, every hanger, every should, hanger have a couch. should have a couch. A nap may break <laughs> out at some point. That's right. So, That's right. So I, I just had her sitting on How the couch. How can you hanger fly if you don't have somewhere to sit? Exactly. Right. And my two hangers, the, the Cessna 152 was directly across from the air cam. The, the, hanger, the T hangers faced each other. So I just had both of them open, and we talked for a good hour about what this was and you know it's there's no rocket ship moment it's actually a very gradual procedure and it took her a good hour to get over and even touch an airplane she was very trepidatious and finally she did go poke around the air cam and she decided if she was going to fly she was going to fly that one and there's actually video on youtube on this one and i love it it's if, if you search air cam amanda joe you'll come up with it but man, I had cameras on it the day we went out to fly. It was just a beautiful morning, and she was so nervous. I mean, you know, you can see those people. They're just they're trying to climb back inside themselves because they're just so uncomfortable. But she came out and she got in the airplane, and I strapped her in, and we're taxiing out. And I'm talking to her the whole time, as you know, I'm kind of verbose. And she, I see her on the camera, and she's really uncomfortable. She's, like, doing deep breathing exercises and things. And I do the run-up, and I explain everything to her. And I, I said, we're going to get out on the center line. I'm going to advance the throttles, and the tail's going to come up, and we're going to pick up some speed, and then we're going to lift off. And that's going to take about 400 feet. It's going to be very quick. And, boy, you should have just... On the tape, you just see her huffing and puffing and, and really not sure. And the minute those wheels came off the ground, she had her fists in the air. She's going, woo! She was just <laughs> greatest time of her life. She loved it. We we ended up going out flying subsequent to that, going and landed on a friend's grass strip. She was just amazed. You can fly out into the woods, land on a grass strip, taxi up to somebody's house, and just go knock on the door. She had no idea that that exists. <laughs> 
That's awesome. <laughs> I have the best time with this stuff, guys. I really do. Oh, that's fantastic. What a cool story. So did, uh, moral of the story, did her husband uh, start training to be a pilot? We've flown a bit. Ironically, he, like me, doesn't like heights and uh, didn't care for the air cam at all. But in an enclosed airplane, he's okay at, and he has been playing with the idea of learning how to fly. But she's a convert now. She's not a negative person anymore. She's that's like, yeah, fantastic. if you want to do it, let's do it. You know, by the way, I'm the, I, w- I was always the same way growing up. I'm well, not growing up, but as I've gotten older and wiser, I guess, is I'm a little nervous of heights. And, and every, <laughs> I'm not and nervous, Mike. I'm terrified. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I guess I kind of am. But it's not heights. It's the dying when you fall off a roof or a yeah. ladder or something. That's what I'm scared of. I'm not, people are like, well, you're, you're afraid of heights. How can you fly? I'm like, because the plane's going to fly. It's not going to, I'm not going to suddenly trip, slide sideways down a roof and land on my head. <laughs> yeah, I can't even explain it, in all honesty, other than maybe it's because my perspective hasn't changed. The The panel in relation to me is all the same. I, I You know, to get a CFI, you have to spin. It didn't bother me. I'm not a big aerobatics guy, but it didn't bother me. I, I spun my cub. No big deal. But I'm not getting up on a ladder. <laughs> yeah, what do you what do you call an airplane with no engine? What a glider! <laughs> <laughs> it still flies. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, oh man. By the way, I happened to f- I just happened to find Amanda's air cam video. Oh, did you? Yeah. Well, I'm telling you, she had the best time in the world, and that's you know that might be the part of my career that has really just. Not to be too eloquent or anything, but really fills my heart, enriches my soul, makes me feel good. We get the ability to take people to do something that scares them or that they never saw themselves being a part of, and we get to make them comfortable in that environment and see that this is perfectly reasonable. This is safe and enjoyable, and you can actually take the stick and do it yourself. That part really lights my fire. That's what does it for me. I love that. Very cool. You, um, you, we've mentioned before. You're an instructor and uh, CFI, CFII, MEI, and it sounds like you've had some fl- pretty interesting flying experiences as an instructor. You care to share some of that with us? There have been a couple of experiences that really stick out <laughs> in my mind, <laughs> and that's generally not because they were so peaceful. <laughs> Well, we don't always tell peaceful stories on this show. So. <laughs> well, I'll tell you when. Well, what is uh, it? Uh, I heard once that uh, an, an instructor described their job as as students try to to kill them, and they're trying to stop them from doing so. So I don't think it's quite that bad. But yeah, I get the idea. <laughs> well, actually, I'll I'll tell you. I had that conversation once. I had hit my maximum eight hours of flight instruction one day which takes about 15, 16 hours. And I was just beat. And I stopped up my folks' house, and uh, my dad was a Pan Am captain, and one of his friends, also a Pan Am captain, was there, Ed Spelzy, who's still alive up in Massachusetts. And I was saying to Ed, you know, you guys do 14-hour route from New York to Tokyo. I just did eight hours, and I'm dying. I don't think I can do what you do. And he goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. All I do is change frequencies. You got people trying to kill you. It's a whole different deal. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, in fairness to the student pilots who are listening, flight instructors are not afraid of you. 
flight instructors don't actually think you're trying to kill them. It's just we have to be on our toes because, you know, you 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 guys fly. I mean, you don't feel like much is happening, but you, even in a 152, you're going 100 miles an hour. There was so, a, a really good experience, a, a really good instance of that or uh, when I was just editing a video of my uh, other show, Flight Review, mm-hmm. and we were right down – we're trying to shoot touch and goes and we're shooting right down the runway and I'm just – I'm inches off the runway, inches, and I sh- like I should be able to land this thing. And Derek was like, my airplane, and took it away from me and – you know, at at that moment, I'm kind of like, uh, I probably could have snuck it in there. Going back and looking at the video with 10 different camera angles, he mm-hmm. took it from me right at the right time. And so as an instructor, he knew, okay, he's about to bend the plane. Yep. I'm going to stop him from getting to that point. So as, yeah, as instructors, you guys are just so in tune with what's going on and you have to be to make sure that the training environment is as safe as it can be. And my hat's off to what you guys are doing. Well, that's really the job. We have to, you know, I like the demonstration performance method. I have to show you how to do it, but then I have to let you do it. And you're not going to be good at it in the beginning. I have to let you feel what's right, what's wrong. I need to let you take the time to get the sight picture. And yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, if I keep taking the airplane from you at 300 feet on final, you're never going to learn how to flare. I got to let you get down there and, you know, find out that, no, you're in a 30-degree bank five feet off the ground. Can we level this out a little? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I have a I have a bad habit of uh, keeping bank angle in it <laughs> close to Yeah, the you're runway. the only one, Dave. Nobody else does yeah, this. Yeah, nobody does that. It's just me. <laughs> That's exactly right. I keep telling him that, Jamie, that was going through training. I, I greased my third landing. I don't know what's wrong with yours. Yeah, I don't know what's wrong with David. Yeah. So anyway, so tell us the story. Well, let me take you back to December 13th, 1992. That's that's like 27 years ago, man. Wow. Um, I was a flight instructor here in Winterhaven, where I live now. Uh, and and I think it's kind of funny that I'm in the same place, because I've been away, but I came back. Basically, the deal was the senior flight instructor's girlfriend had rented a warrior from the flight school and flown down to Naples. She was a healthcare ex- executive. And she had some meetings to do, but it went IFR while she was there and it just never got better. So the end of the day comes and I'm talking, this is seven, eight o'clock at night. And Brad starts saying, Hey, let's fly down and, um, I'll fly my girlfriend home and you fly the other plane home. And you know, I'm a flight instructor. I've been here since seven o'clock this morning and I'm saying, nah, I don't think so, man. I'm tired. Oh, come on, come on. And Brad was a great guy, a really great guy, an exceptional pilot. So finally, I knuckled under, and I jumped in a 172 RG with him. I flew left seat. He flew right seat. And it was just crap weather. It it was hard IMC the whole way. So it was actually a great experience for me. But I had the leans worse than I've ever had them in my life. Twice on that flight, Brad would say, hey, uh, look at the attitude indicator. And I felt fine, but I was in a good 30, 35-degree bank. Had to bring it back. So it was a it was a stressful flight from Winterhaven to Naples. I think it was like 1.6, something like that, to get down there. An hour, 0.6. So we get there, and the, the weather's still crappy, but the RG is IFR capable. So Brad grabs his girlfriend, and they jump in the RG, and they go home. Now, I had taken a line guy with me just so I wouldn't be alone on the flight home because I'm tired. 
but it's still IFR and the airplanes, a VFR airplane. So we have to wait and wait and wait. And I'm back then there was no internet 92. So I'm calling 1-800 weather brief, trying to find out what's going on. Finally, they give me a report that looks like it's pretty good. So the line guy and I go out and pre-flight the airplane. Everything looks good. We fire it up. We do the run up and all that stuff pop on the master avionics switch and get approval to take off out of Naples. Now, this is a long time ago, so Naples wasn't all awash in jets. It was a different kind of thing. And if you look at a chart now between Winter Haven and Naples, Southwest Florida International is right along the route. Well, that wasn't there then. It was just swamp. The whole thing was swamp. So I take off and I'm climbing out and everything's going fine. And I call back to naples tower to ask for a frequency change and i don't get a response and i call again and i don't get a response and i notice all of a sudden that the dg which i set back on the ground is now 30 degrees off from the compass splendid but but i don't know which one's wrong because it's just a few minutes and what i didn't know is that there had been some radio work done on that airplane and nobody had swung the compass afterwards so it was the compass that was wrong, but I'm just, I'm in the dark now and I was planning on climbing up to, I think 3,500 feet was my plan, if I recall correctly. But at 1,500, I was in clouds with rain. So I was like, this is not great. So I had to, we're kind of scud running at night, headed home with my DG saying I'm, I'm headed in one direction, my compass saying I'm 30 degrees off in another direction, and the the upper latch on the door lets go. Oh, jeez. So it's like everything in the world is just falling out part on this flight. And and I will tell you the honest truth. I had no idea where I was. I'm trying to track the, the Lakeland VOR, and it's just impossible because I don't know if my DG's right or my compass is right, and I'm trying to keep the needle centered. But I don't know if I'm even getting quality s- signal on that. And back then, Winter Haven's um, beacon was roughly a coffee can with a birthday candle in it. I mean, if if you were standing (laughs) next to it, you could kind of see a dim glow. And I honestly had no idea where I was. and starting to get nervous because I'm watching the clock, and I should be home by now. And finally, Wayne, the line guy, is like, oh, there's home. (laughs) Because he he had lived here longer and saw a street intersection he recognized. Man. And I'll tell you, for years, that was the worst flight I had ever had. It was just everything that could go wrong went wrong. The one good thing I did on that was just keep flying the airplane. You're in the air. You don't like any of this, but I can't raise Naples on the radio. I couldn't get Fort Myers on the radio. There's nobody to alert to my situation. So might as well just keep going home and see what happens. And it worked out. So what, uh, if you were encounter, let's, okay, let's say you encountered the same situation today, what would you do differently from, you know, from not having a VFR airplane to, I mean, what, what would you do differently if you had to get the same thing? You know, in, in all honesty, if it happened to me today, as soon as I realized I had the, uh, the compass DG problem after realizing I have a radio problem, I'd have turned around and circled the tower 500 feet above pattern altitude and got light gun signals to land. It, it, you know, I, back then I felt a responsibility to get the flight school owner's airplane back. You know, you're 
flight instructor trying to do a good job. That really wasn't my primary duty. My primary duty was to keep my passengers safe. And while it worked out well, it, it easily might not have. So, because we, we really had nothing going for us other than just a little bit of luck and some persistence. Jamie, I can't tell you how many NTSB stories start off with the number of issues that happened before a plane went down. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's exactly how this sounded. Um, well, it's tough to re- – and I will tell you, it was a great thing as an educational tool for me. It is very difficult to remain focused on flying the plane when you have a problem, then a second problem, then a third problem, then, hey, I can't see anything, and the weather's worse than expected – and, and I'm not trying to say I'm a great pilot. I'm not. I'm just a safe pilot. That's the best I can do. But th- you're exactly right, Mike. That's one of those situations where you look and say, if I had just let the emotion get to me, that would have been the end of it. And you just have to keep going, well, I don't actually know my heading precisely, but I'm in a ballpark and my attitude indicator works. So I know I'm right side up. And I've got airspeed. I can set pitch and power. I kind of know where I'm going that way. And I, I can see the some of the lights of the West Coast off to my left. So I know I'm in the right general direction. I was actually worried about missing Winter Haven and flying into uh, Orlando International's airspace, which would have been bad. <laughs> but, you know, it you live, you learn. And uh, that was actually a great learning experience for me and uh, a really spirited conversation the next day <laughs> as to why yeah. didn't you tell me that the, the compass wasn't right and the radio didn't work. <laughs> yeah. So did he use the radio on the way in? She she had used the radio on the way in, and it worked when you were very, very close. Um, it just <clears> – the shielding wasn't <laughs> like right. Outside the – like in front of the tower. Yeah, the shielding wasn't right, and the, the antenna was kind of – glitchy but um if if you were oriented correctly you could get something but you know when i was trying to call them i was just a little farther out than that you know from five miles away they couldn't hear me big fun which which means you were getting out like a couple hundred milliwatts tops because i mean the thing if when when you're line of sight at 1500 feet you should be able to to talk for 20 miles even on just a couple of watts so wow that's crazy you know my cub i used a handheld with an external antenna and it was fine yep but this just this was not working right and um it it was oddly enough in retrospect it was a good experience that was not a good night and of course by the time i got home it was well after midnight i'd had more than three hours of really stressful flying on top of a full day of flight instructing prior to that and I, I really learned something about fatigue. I probably couldn't have kept that up for another hour. Yeah, I'm guessing not. Wow. Cool. Hmm. Tough tough flight for sure. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm guessing the airplane got fixed immediately. It got grounded, and it went into the shop, and it did get fixed before anybody else took it. And, you know, I'll tell you, that's a thing. I, I've, I've had that in my career. I was flying for a company in Connecticut once, um, and I had – done a go-round with a student and the airplane just barely cleared trees and I, I refused to fly the plane anymore i said it's not developed in power and the the boss was not happy about that because obviously this is i'm i'm telling him he has to do something expensive this needs a teardown right. and and he doesn't want to hear that because that's a fairly large investment 
And I think I probably would have been fired until another instructor on staff said, yeah, I've had that problem. I'm not going to fly that one anymore either. And they tore it down. And it turned out that the cam lobes were way rounded off. It was a defective cam. And, and it wasn't opening the valves all the way. So I wasn't getting a big whopping 110 horsepower. I was getting maybe 80. And that was why. But, you know, that's one of those things you learn. And you're, you're the pilot. You're the one who's there seeing it, feeling it, seeing the sight picture. you got to stand up for yourself. If that airplane's not airworthy, you have to say so. And if you lose your job, you lose your job. But I'm not flying that anymore. That's really interesting because uh, at, at the flight school where I fly – we we have our own maintenance shop and you, know, you saying something means somebody will be out to that airplane immediately they'll drive the golf cart right out and they'll take a look at it i mean i mentioned something once about um you know the brake pads that i didn't like or i mm-hmm. i mentioned something about a screw that was missing and they're like oh yeah we'll fix that right now and so i i'm i'm not I, I haven't experienced that kind of a uh, oh well it's fine just go fly it attitude and so I I kind of wonder what happens if that how how will how will I react if I'm confronted with that kind of a thing because I'm not an A and P you you are an A and P and so you know maybe not then but now you know you know an an airworthy aircraft from one that's not and so if somebody comes to me and says oh no it's fine you know, like what what am i to do just trust it or well you do have to be your own advocate but you're also a consumer if you don't like that airplane if you don't feel comfortable with that flight instructor there's no compelling reason for you to fly with in that plane or with that instructor um, a really professional flight instructor. If you were, if you were my student, David, and you came to me one day and say, you know, I enjoy going to lunch with you, but we're just not clicking in the airplane, and I want to make a change. All right, that's I get that. And a, a good professional flight instructor takes no offense at that because interpersonal mm-hmm. relationships do vary, and you need to be comfortable and have trust and faith in me, and we need to communicate clearly. And if that's not happening. You don't have to pay while I try and learn how to speak to you in a way you can hear me. You go find somebody else. That that's okay. And and that's you know one of the things you learn as you go on. You do have to be your own advocate. And you may not be able to explain why you're not comfortable with that airplane. You're just not comfortable. You know the 152 I fly now has just recently picked up a vibration. And uh I kind of thought it was my imagination at first. It's just a four-banger. It's not the most complicated thing in the world. But I use a GoPro on the instrument panel when when I'm flying with kids and stuff. And I noticed the last couple flights, it had a flicker to the video when we're at high power settings. So, you know, I reported it to operations and, oh, sure, let's go get a dynamic balance done on the prop. I love working for people who take that attitude you're talking about. Let's fix this. What? Why? Keep going. Let's if we've got a problem, let's fix it. But that's not always the case. And of course, you'll meet people over your life who say, "Yeah, let's go fly out for lunch." And you get there and see the plane, and you're like, ah, "I'm not real comfortable with this." <laughs> and I, I, you know, I've done that as a CFI too. I've told people who own their own plane, "I'll instruct you, but not in your plane." And I mean no offense, but I'm not flying your plane. I don't think it's safe. It's an awful lot of planes out there that are not, and um, but there's also an awful lot of safe planes out there that have unsafe pilots. So I've seen it from both sides, and it's just like, ooh. Well, and not, on the upside, okay. you know, I, I used to restore World War II airplanes as a, as an AMP. Um, 
you can fix anything. If you've got That's the time right. and the money, everything can be brought back. So, you know, it, it's really just a matter of having the, the dedication to get it back to airworthy status. And that's true for the pilot, too. That's the whole point of the rusty pilot thing. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you, I, I recently met a guy up in Pensacola, and I asked him if it was okay to tell this story, So, and he was very gracious about it. Met this guy, Glenn, and he had been to a rusty pilot seminar in Oregon. Somebody else taught it, and he was talking about how good it was and how helpful he's been out of aviation for a while. And uh, he was really glad to be having that opportunity, and he was getting back with much greater confidence. And later in the day, we ended up in the Blue Angels hangar. And it was really bad weather, so they brought Blue Angel number one, the the airplane into the hangar so we could see it, and the maintenance crew could walk us through it. And then the Blues came out, and we did a little Q&A, and we spent some time with them. And I noticed everybody was talking to this guy, Glenn. All the blues are talking to this guy, which is a little unusual. Come to hmm. find out, he's the only person to have commanded the Blue Angels three tours. He was wow. a blue. But he took a rusty pilot course and found real value in it. You know, it doesn't matter if it's the airframe or the engine or the prop or the pilot. We all get wear. We all need tweaking now and then. That's right. If, if a guy with that background can go back to a ground school and say, man, I'm glad I took this. All of us can. So uh, the, the, the real answer to this question is, when does a private pilot stop needing to do the flight review? Never. Never. That's right. Never. They nope. have to do it forever because you, you never stop needing to hone a skill and to be proficient in something. Well, I'll tell you, when I started flying, and you know I'm 112 years old, um, we had Tursas and Arsas. We didn't have Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Delta airspace. Right. Every airplane I flew had an ADF in it. That's pretty much useless unless you want to listen to baseball now. <laughs> glass was unheard of. The first glass I ever saw was in a Waco open cockpit biplane. It was $10,000 for something that was about four inches wide. And I couldn't figure out for the life of me why you'd want to be in the weather in an open cockpit airplane. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, now I fly a Cessna 152 with a Garmin 650 in it. I have exceptional avionics. And with the backup of my iPad and my phone both running for flight, I have better instrumentation than airliners had back in the 70s. Wow. So, I mean, there's there's... There's a real reason to continue your education. The, the regulations change. The airspace changes. The technology changes. We didn't have sport pilot when I started. We didn't have basic med. You need to go continue your education just so you're aware of the environment. Yeah. That was my dad when he was getting back into flight training or back into flying. He, he was really concerned that so many things had changed that he was not going to be um, like, he's going to be way behind the power curve after not flying for, for 25 years. But mm -hmm. he, he got hooked up with a really great instructor. And like you said, melded with him in a, in a really real way and was able to pick up the things that he had lost. Um, and now, you know, my dad's flying with four flight and using an iPad. And uh, I mean, he knows how to do all this stuff and he's, you know, flying a system 172 and going and getting breakfast and taking up family members and friends and, 
Um, actually just recently took his wife up to do the, uh, the, uh, SLF tour up at Kennedy space center. So, oh, nice. Yeah. It's pretty cool. There's so. so many things you can do in an airplane that are just, whether it's getting someplace isolated or doing something like the tour over at the space center or flying to the islands, you know, whether it's the Bahamas or the keys or off Washington coast or out to Catalina in California, it doesn't matter. I mean, there's so many things you can do. And it really is pretty easy to, to get back to it. And frankly, and your dad's probably told you, the ability to gather information now, weather information, airspace information now with the internet is so much easier. It's an app on your phone. Yeah. I, I mean, we used to have to make phone calls and try and imagine things and figure it out. And well, I don't know. Now it's like, well, I can just see color-coded dots. And with the graphical weather forecast, man, it's, it's cakewalk. He loves the uh, ADSB in looking and seeing the mm. uh, traffic uh, on his iPad and stuff. I mean, that that just I think that's a huge thing, and especially after the first of the year, when it's basically required for flying in, with anybody in uh, you know certain controlled airspaces. Uh, and he, you know how it is here in Florida. We have mm-hmm. three three Bravos in Florida, and so there's not a whole lot of places you can fly without ADSB out, which means everybody three Bravos and three Charlies. There's yeah. a there's a lot of airspace here, but we also have an awful lot of Golf and Echo, so you can make your choice. Right, but you're absolutely right. You know, a lot of people worry about ADSB and they feel like you're privacy is being eroded i don't really worry about that but i will tell you in the case of if i lost an engine having adsb is awesome because when i make that mayday call they find me right quick Mm-hmm. that's exactly correct do you have another story for us i always got another story david uh, <laughs> well i will tell, tell you one that happened just recently I'll, I'll bring it up to the 21st century uh Somebody asked me to fly their Super Cub, Amphibious Super Cub, and I really do like Super Cubs. I did my last flight review in a Super Cub on floats. It's an awesome airplane. As much as I love my J3, a Super Cub is an amazing machine. But I had never flown this particular one, and the owner was hundreds of miles away. When you say you haven't flown this particular <clears throat> one, are are there a lot of differences like between the ones you have experienced flying and maybe this one? Sometimes there are, sometimes there aren't. When you get an airplane that's 60 years old or so, it's possible that there have been some STCs added in. And uh, you just never know. I mean, it, it, so it's worth asking. And I did talk to a person who did maintenance on it. I, I talked to a person who had flown it quite a bit. And they assured me it's just like any other Super Cub. So uh, I went out and did a really good pre-flight. It's an amphibious Super Cub. It's on floats, on wheels. And I got to it on the ground. Went and did a good pre-flight. Everything looked good, except it was pretty much out of fuel. So I called the fuel truck over and filled up the, the left and right main. Plenty of fuel. Life is good. And as I told you before, I don't really like flying alone if I can help it. I like to take somebody along. So I invited the airport director. But she was busy doing some other things. And she said, you know what? Take one of the line guys. They'd appreciate it. So I took a line guy who is studying to be a pilot and popped him in the back seat. And we fired the thing up. And, you know, I I let him try taxiing. And taxiing an amphibious Super Cub is kind of neat. It's like a shopping cart. It's it's you kind of got to use brakes the rudder won't do it but it's it, it's not like a tail dragger so we, we get out and you know we take off and it's an absolutely beautiful day and like 
the J3, there's really no reason to climb up high. So we're flying around, you know, 1,000 feet, 1,500 feet. And I let the kid in the back do all the flying because why not? I mean, I get to fly it all the time. We're just circulating oil, making sure the thing flies a bit so it doesn't just sit there. Well, he did a great job. I mean, he did just a fantastic job flying the airplane. I was really impressed. His name's Jake, and he did just really well, especially since he's a student pilot and he's flying an airplane he's never been in before. Well, we get back on 45 to the downwind, and I'm explaining to him that I'm going to take it back for the landing, and I noticed the engine sag just a bit as we're on 45 to the downwind, but it came right back. So he's saying, okay, and I take the stick from him. We do the, you know, I have the controls, you have the controls, I have the controls. We do that whole thing. And I'm explaining them the importance of doing a gumps check because this is a retractable. We don't want to land on the, the runway with the wheels up. Not the worst thing in the world, but it's not great. So I'm flying on downwind, and, and things are going well. And I reach up, and I put the gear switch down. And the moment I put the gear switch down, I get an unsafe gear warning, and the engine starts to die. And I spend a good 10 seconds just in this mental lockup. How are these two connected? (laughs) (laughs) There should be no similarity between these two things. And there are on the floats, there are mechanical indicators that your gear is up or down. But I've got two lights telling me the gear on the left or down and no lights telling me the gear on the right is up. But I'm looking at out the door at the it looks like they're down, but I can't tell for sure. And the engine is really dying. So I'm not going to make it to the runway. I'm going to end up in the water. Well, you don't want to land in the water with the gear down because then you'll end up upside down. And especially if you've got two up and two down, it's going to slew really hard. It'll yaw really hard one direction. This is going to be an unpleasant experience. So I put the gear, the engine hasn't died entirely yet. So I put the gear position selector in the up position hopefully pulling the gear back up and I'm losing altitude and heading for a lake now because I'm not going to make it to the runway. And I still have bad gear indicator. I don't get up on the right side, which I had before. I just have the left is up, but the right might not be. Well, I'm headed downhill. My engine is dying. I don't really know what's going on with the gear. And normally I wouldn't switch fuel tanks, but this is going as badly as it can go. So I switch from the right tank to the left tank, and about five seconds later, the engine comes back beautifully. So I level off, and I stay over the lake, just building altitude up again, circling the lake. I'm not having all that much fun at this point, and the kid behind me is understandably (laughs) really nervous that this isn't working out well. So now my focus is shifting to, you know, what happened and what's my gear issue. So I, I... I am very lucky that there was an examiner on the field who had a handheld and I called into the field and said, I've got a gear problem. Is there anybody that can do a visual check as I do a low flyby? She came out to the runway in a golf cart with her handheld. I did a flyby with the wheels down. She said, they are down. You're, you're good. So came back around, did a landing. Turned out what had happened was the, uh, a cannon plug had fallen out of the belly. Some maintenance had been done on the airplane, and the cannon plug that controlled the the right gear lighting system had just fallen out. And it's just just 
bad luck that happened at the same time I'd put the gear switch down. The fuel thing was an entirely different thing. I knew I had filled the tanks and I had selected the right tank, which I had just filled up and life is good. What I didn't know is there's a third auxiliary tank on this airplane and the selector is behind the pilot. So it's not within your view. I never oh. saw the tank. I never saw the selector. I never saw the gauge. Wow. <laughs> so I had been flying. I thought I was flying on these 23-gallon main tanks. I was actually flying on a partially filled 9-gallon ox tank. <laughs> so uh, live and learn. <laughs> Jesus. Wow. This is almost turned into a John Denver story, man. You know, a couple of people have made that point. And it, it really is an interesting thing, though. I... I thought I had done my due diligence. I had talked to some people, but I really hadn't gotten it. I mean, I did a good pre-flight, but, you know, when you're dealing with uh, an amphib, a plane on floats, the wing is way up high, a high-wing airplane. It's way up there. You know, you're not going to just clamber up like you would on a 172 or something. So I really didn't have the opportunity to get up on top of the wing, and I would have noticed, what, hey, how come there's a third filler cap? So... You know, it, it's a it was a great learning experience, as they all are. Everything that happens, good or bad, is always a learning experience. That I could have done this better. I I you know I made a good decision there. I kept flying the airplane. You know, it's uh it works out. And and I will say, you know, being able to check the mechanical indicators on the gear, I've got a pretty good idea that I can go into the water with the gear up, and life is good. Worst case, if I could have made it to the runway and really had absolutely no idea. We'd have landed gear up on the runway. And, uh, yeah, <clears throat> and that would have worked out okay. Much better laying gear up on grass or asphalt than gear down on water. You know, it's it's one of the things I love. I'm lucky. I pl fly land planes and seaplanes, singles and multis. I get to fly a, a wide variety of stuff, and I absolutely love what I do. But sometimes you make a mistake. So you just stick with it. Keep flying the plane. Don't give up. And uh, odds are things will work out in your favor at some point. I find it very interesting that you were, in fact, dealing with two separate distinct issues that manifested themselves at the same time. Like, usually you can find a correlation between these two. This caused that, you know, you're in the previous story, your compass was off by 30 degrees because there was a problem with the radios. I get mm -hmm. that. Like, that seems like two different things, but they're tied together. But in this case... These two issues, the fuel issue by being on the wrong tank and the gear indication issue, those are separate, unrelated issues. And that cost me a good 10 seconds, and, and I kind of regret that, where you're just – and I was very lucky. I had a really great chief instructor years ago, Frank Gallagher. Used to be, he was went to Annapolis. He was a colonel in the Marine Corps, flew helicopters and fixed wing. He was Sikorsky's chief test pilot, really smart guy. I still know him. I really think the world of him. But when he would do uh, instructional flights with his instructors, he would do simulated engine failures and not let us do anything for two to three seconds. Because he said, in real life, this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to mentally lock up going, oh, this is not happening. Well, that's pretty much what happened because for me, the engine started dying in earnest right when I put the gear down and I got caught up for a few seconds. And what's the connection between those two? Uh, the, the engine shouldn't affect the gear that way or vice versa. I mean, 
that that can't putting a gear down can't kill the engine and i wasted a few seconds just trying to figure that out and eventually you know luckily fairly quickly you separate them and you go you know what we're going to deal with the engine dying first and deal with the gear second because i got to get this thing on the ground safely because you are responsible for your passenger the neat thing for me the best part of this whole experience actually was the next day i went back to the fbo and the line guy was working and i you know i pulled him aside i said are you okay you know that was kind of a stressful thing and he had the best attitude in the world he said i was pretty shook up and i talked to people and some other pilots said that's the best thing that ever could have happened to you you had your first full-blown emergency while somebody else was flying you get to see how that works That's yeah. right, <laughs> and he took, right. yeah. he took a great lesson from it, and it was that was so terrific. And we have a great relationship; we talk to each other frequently. But I loved that he could look at the big picture and say, "Okay, a bad thing happened," and it was largely a self-induced bad thing. It it was an oversight on my part, but that doesn't mean this has to end badly. You stick with it. You keep flying the airplane. You pitch for the right. You know, for the glide speed, you're not going to make the runway good. Don't go in the woods. Let's go to water. We're on floats, you know, and, and let, start making some good decisions. They might not be the decision you want, but that's what you got right now. So go there. And uh, it, it was a great experience. I'm not saying I want to do it again, but it was a great experience. Good, good judgment comes from experience, but unfortunately, experience usually comes from bad judgment. Yeah. And, you know, we are all fallible. That's true. We, every one of us is going to make a mistake that we shouldn't have made. Every one of us is going to overlook something that was obvious. It's just human nature. We try hard not to, and we put real effort into supporting each other and letting people know, take your time, you know, get some information, read the book, get some instruction. And normally I wouldn't have flown a plane. I hadn't flown with somebody who had experience first. This was just an unusual circumstance, and boy, I, I sure learned something. For sure. Can we go back to the uh, ox tank real quick? I'm sure. kind of curious um, if the switch, I'm just trying to kind of draw the picture for the audience, if the switch and the indicator for the ox tank was behind the seat, what, what did that switch actually do? Because you Good were question. able to bring the engine back by switching from the right tank to the left tank, or maybe vice versa. The Super Cub has two tanks in the, in the wings, one on left, one on the right, and there are indicators in the wing routes, which are right up by the pilot's head. You fly the Super Cub from the front seat. So it, it's right near your head, and you can easily see those gauges. And that's part of my problem. I see myself having fuel, fuel and it, it's acting like it's out. There is an STC to add an auxiliary tank, a nine-gallon auxiliary tank, which gives you an hour of en route cruise. And normally what you would do is you take... Where does that tank live? It's, it's farther out on the right wing. And the selector valve is to the... It's on the right behind the pilot's head so it's a, if you're sitting in the passenger seat the back seat it if you raise your right hand to the ceiling it, you'd find it right there so on the cub you only have a left and right typically correct and what the selector in the back does is select either aux tank or main tank and i thought i had selected right tank because i had selected right tank i didn't know there was this second selector that was on the aux tank which was not full um, and when when I changed the selector to the left tank, well, that tank is full. I, I inadvertently 
had chosen a tank that was going to run empty instead of the tank that was full that I thought I had. So the the auxiliary runs off the right tank and bypasses the left entirely, I see. Yeah, yep. So when I switched it to left tank, boom, I have fuel. And it's gravity feed. I love gravity feed fuel systems. They just work every time. They're great. Unless you're upside down. Yeah, yeah. I try not to do that, Mike. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Especially in an amphib. But yeah, it's, you know, that's one of those things you, you learn. And as I say, there, that's an STC that was added years later. I had never flown a Super Cub that had that STC. It didn't even occur to me. I've never in my life looked in the back seat to see if there are any controls I need back there. And uh, it bit me. And I've flown that airplane since. I mean, understanding how that fuel system works now. Now I have a great deal of confidence. I really like that airplane a lot, and I'm I'm very fortunate that I get to fly it periodically. But that really was the issue. I didn't understand the fuel system, and I thought I did. Oops. It seems to me that, you know, you taking 10 seconds to kind of figure this out, you know, you're, I don't know, you're, you're giving yourself a... a, a you're saying that was my biggest mistake was wait trying to spend 10 seconds trying to figure this out and and before i kind of refocus and i think my goodness 10 seconds i'd still be like what why is you know trying to figure out where i was like i mean it just it seems to me like you're um so far ahead of the game because 10 seconds seemed like a long time to you for me 10 seconds would be like yo i I guess the engine's quitting well Um, and respectfully david that's after 30 years of experience of flying. Sure. If this can, happened I'll, I'll, to me, I can in, totally understand that. If this happened to me in my first hundred hours, I would have been in the trees. You think, but yeah, <laughs> I would have been hung up on what, what's going on. here. <laughs> and you know, you do see that with flight students and, and this, I'm not making fun of flight students. I was in this boat once too. You're up flying along and your instructor fails the engine. And before you know it, you're going 110 knots and you're like, no, no, no. Control the airplane, trim it for best glide. Now start looking around. If, if you just start looking around, you're in trouble. So when I say it takes me 10 seconds, and it does, it takes me 10 seconds while, while I'm trimming the airplane up for best glide and looking at where can I go because I'm only at 1,000 feet. You know, what are my options? I'm running other things through my head and what's going on. And because I have a background with, maintenance i know the engine and the gear aren't directly connected i mean the pump is connected but that pump is not even that pump is frozen it's not going to kill the engine something's going on here and the key is to just figure out you know like that expression fly the airplane seriously it's really that simple fly the airplane if you have to fly it all the way to the ground because at least now you're under control right um if you give up or if you freak out or if you get so distracted by which position the gear is in, well, now you're in real trouble. Fly the airplane. Fly the airplane. Cool. Man, good stuff. Thanks for let thanks for letting me relive these. This is this is actually a lot of fun for me. Well I've got to commend you guys on even having these discussions and I'll share a statistic with you that Richard McSpadden from the Air Safety Institute, brought to my attention, and I really like it. I think it's important. When AOPA started 80 years ago, there were 120 fatalities per 100,000 flight hours. Today, it's 0.8. Wow. 
that's an enormous improvement. And that is because of education. It's because the equipment has gotten better, but it's it's largely because people have put effort into what's the correct procedure? How do you implement that procedure? What will this aircraft do? What can I do? You know, as long as you guys are out having these discussions, sharing this information in a really entertaining manner so that people have a compelling reason to listen and, and it's enjoyable to them, you really are making the general aviation pilot population safer by doing what you're doing because they don't have to go through this where they make that ridiculous flight from Naples to Winter Haven with all the problems I had or, you know, we get to live vicariously not, through you. Well, everybody you talk to, you know, yeah. even telling your own stories, Mike, about, you know, having a simulated engine failure and you just, I don't know what to do. And you realize in that instant, when the thing happens, if you haven't drilled for this, if you haven't practiced this, if you don't have a procedure at your fingertips, yeah. you're in deep doo-doo. That's not a good time to break out the book. <laughs> Actually, when I, when I had the gear problem um, the, and I got back on the ground, uh, the examiner asked me, did you break out the, the manual for the gear system? And I said, no, I was losing the engine. I had enough going on. <laughs> she goes, good, because it's three pages long. You wouldn't have got through it. <laughs> uh, cool. Jamie, thanks so much. A um, couple of questions for you that are um, not necessarily related to these flights. Sure. Um, just kind of curious. Of all of the airplanes you've flown so far, which one's your favorite? I think I got to go with the Piper Cub. Mine was a 1940 J3, still 65 horsepower, wooden prop, no electrical system. I had a handheld radio in it. And one of the things I really loved about that airplane is getting out early in the morning or in the evening, taking off and heading up north across I-4, you know, where everybody's going to Disney or off to Tampa. And I get up over the green swamp, and this is exactly what flying was like when my dad was a kid. When the World War II guys were training down here, this is it. There's nobody to talk to. I'm in echo airspace. And and one of the things I did love very much about the Cub and the Air Cam is those are planes that you go out and fly, and when you come back to the airport, you have to climb to get to pattern altitude. <laughs> That's awesome. Yes, I love that. Yes. I flew in a, a Dakota Cub once at Oshkosh. Ah, yes. And we we climbed right to 500 feet, and I don't think we hardly ever went above it except for when we were playing around with some stalls. But, like, flying mm -hmm. super low like that is just awesome. I love well, that. That's where I really got my love for Cubs, to tell you the truth. When I got my seaplane rating, I did it at Jack Brown Seaplane Base here in Winter Haven. It's, it's right near my house. But they fly cubs on floats. And, you know, you've got to get some altitude into a stall and some turns and things. But in general, you're working on water work, takes offs, landing, sailing, you know, idle taxi and step taxi and things like that. You rarely get above 500 feet, but you might do 30 takeoffs and landings in a lesson. It's awesome because there's 60 lakes here in town. So you just take off land, take off land, take off land, and you're going through the whole town. I absolutely love that. You're right. You have a fantastic view, and it's such a slow airplane. I remember when I got mine, a, a friend of mine checked me out it because I didn't have a tail rider sign off when I bought mine. I had to get one. It took me a whopping 2.8 hours too. Um, 
but I had to, I, I was flying with this guy. We we're flying from Lake Wales back to Winter Haven. And I remember the door is open. And it's just one of those beautiful, warm evenings, not hot, just warm. And he said, Hey, you see that house down there? And I said, yeah. And he says, that's where I grew up. And we used to do this. And we had a whole conversation about his childhood while he passed this house. <laughs> Cause you're not moving very fast. That's funny. <laughs> yep. Yep. And it was what just, was, it was what was the stall warner on your cub? The door, the yes. lower door. You yes. fly with the doors open, and when the lower door starts flapping, you're you're coming up on the stall. Yep, that's right. That's what I remember with the. That, yeah. Oh yeah, that's that's, that's it. exactly what I remember with the Dakota Cub was you just left the door open and went because it was a bifold door, like or a top piece went up, yep. bottom piece went down, and when the bottom piece started floating up, you knew that you were taking air the wrong direction. Yep. <laughs> It's uh, it's an amazing thing, and and you know, part of it is it's such a basic airplane. You're not distracted by gizmos or gadgets. You're not looking at the panel, and frankly, you solo the J3 from the back seat. So even when you fly with somebody else, you can't really see the panel. You fly by looking at the angle of the wingtip to the horizon, because seeing over the nose doesn't really work, and you just feel it. It it's it really does have have great benefit to you becoming a good seat of the pants pilot and learning this plane has huge limitations in terms of power and performance you have to nurse it into everything it's not going to just do things for you and and that's a that's a wonderful airplane for that and by the way they are somewhat expensive to buy they cost nothing to fly i mean five gallons an hour maybe yeah that's nothing all right, so knowing what airplanes you've flown, which uh, which airplane haven't you flown that you've just got to get your hands on someday? DC-3. I've never flown a DC-3, and that's like my thing. I, I just That's such a beautiful, iconic airplane. It's really what brought us from the days where the train was the practical way of going long distances to the airplane was the way of practically going long distances. It, it's such a beautiful machine, and I met a guy probably 20 years ago now, but he had started his career at Eastern Airlines flying New York to Miami and DC-3s and ended it New York to Miami flying L-1011s. A friend of my dad's did the same thing. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, he flew for Eastern also. And the fact the fact that the DC-3, which was being built in the 30s and 40s, is still a viable airplane today it is absolutely amazing. I would love to fly a DC-3. I may never, but I would love to. That was one of the first planes I've ever flown that wasn't a like a jet, like a regular, mm-hmm. like a 2.7 or an L-1011 or whatever. I mean, that was, we went did a fishing trip in Canada, in Northwest Territories, and they had rain. And they usually have a chartered 750 or 737 mm-hmm. that, that they would fly out to this, literally a dirt runway. Um, but it was so bad from the rain that they wouldn't have been able to take off. So they flew two DC-3s in instead. And I didn't realize at the time how awesome that was. <laughs> it's just... It's I mean, I was, such I was 13 a, years old. It's such a gorgeous airplane. Everything about it is perfect. Yeah. Nowadays, you can actually get one. Um, they're actually doing a bunch of turbine conversions on them. So they're yeah, they extending the, the life of these it. things yeah. by putting turbine gas turbine engines on them. Just awesome. They're well, doing that up in uh, Oshkosh. If you would Correct. have a discussion with my wife, David, I think you might nudge her in the direction of us getting one. Oh, yeah. I can do that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have a hanger on my field that it'll fit in. <laughs> hey, I, I think you two should split this. I, I, I like the way partner. you think, Mike. 
Like, yeah. I'm just saying. I think I that's going to help both of you guys with the cost if you split it. Uh, right it'll down the help. It'll help. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jamie, thank you so much for taking some time out of your schedule to come chat with us. I know you know you 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 have so many things going, and um, I love every one of them. Uh, in any any single one of them is enough for a single person to handle, and you seem to to bring them all together as as the you can fly ambassador, as a as an instructor, as a as a. Uh, uh, a musician a and a writer. Like, I mean, Journalist. you do so many different things. You've actually got, um, we didn't mention it earlier, but you've actually written some, uh, some books, which are available at, uh, on, on Amazon. I've, I've read a couple of them myself. Um, it, so. it's probably critical to mention though. Those are not aviation books. Those are like fiction novels and things. They're, they don't have anything to do with aviation, really. They have to do with you, and that's what matters. And so, I mean, they're really cool stuff. So, Well, you're very um, flattering, fact- guys. I, I have enjoyed this tremendously, whether it's on the ramp at Sun and Fun, in the studio, wherever you ever want me, I'll be there. Because you guys do a great job, a really good job. I listen to you when I'm not on the air with you. So thank you so much. I really appreciate this. Oh, we I- appreciate that, Jamie. And yeah. to the listeners, if you ever get to Sun and Fun, go find... Uh, the 152 that's on the platform with the multicolored lights. <laughs> <laughs> that would be yeah. Jamie's airplane. He's That'd usually around somewhere airplane. showing it off to somebody. Yeah, that's right. baby. <laughs> Jamie, where can people find more information about you? Um, AOPA.org. And if in, in all honesty, if you're in Florida and you're interested in the high school program or Rusty Pilots, if you want to help your flight school work better, if you want to start a flying club, literally just call the main number at AOPA and say, can I have Jamie's home number? They'll give it to you. Very cool. All right. Uh, Jamie, thanks so much again for joining us here. This has been a lot of fun. And especially thanks to our audience for taking the time to listen to this show. And we've got some pretty cool reviews on iTunes. Um, any, All of you have taken some time to rate us and write a review. That helps us out so much. Thank you very much. Yeah, we really appreciate it. So uh, I think that'll pretty much do it for this episode. Uh, Mike, anything left to say? Um. That no, sounds about that's, right. Cool. That's uh, usually that's usually not the correct answer. Very erudite, Mike. That was excellent. Uh, uh, <laughs> how about you, Jamie? Anything left for us? Um, you know what? I'll throw in uh, if somebody wants to email me. It's Jamie J A M I E dot Beckett B E C K E T T at aopa dot org. And seriously, I tell people all the time: it's not an imposition. This is what I do. This is my seven day a week mission. So uh, if I can help, if I can provide some guidance, if I can connect you to somebody, give me a ring. Drop me a line. I'm happy to do it. Awesome. Thanks so much again. And uh, we will catch you on the next episode of Logbook Memories. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Jamie. Take care, guys. Thanks so much for listening to Logbook Memories. If you'd like to share a memory from your logbook, drop us an email to stories at logbookmemories.com. That's stories at logbookmemories.com. And since we are just starting out, it would mean the world to us if you left a five-star rating on iTunes. And if you really want to help us out, maybe write a short review telling the world how awesome we are. Don't forget to share us with your friends. We'll catch you on the next episode of Logbook Memories. Dave, this intro is going to take half the episode. Yeah, I, think. I know. Uh, <laughs> you I've, can I've skip over anything. I've never had to anything. do one that took two lines. I'm already. <laughs>
You can yeah. skip over anything. If you can just go, here's Actually, Jamie. I'm just, fine just with flip that. it over. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to skip over Page anything. Two. <laughs> <laughs> Page two. Yeah. Uh, how many hours do you have? No idea. Okay, cool. Fair enough. No, I, I'm serious. I didn't log anything except landings for 23 years. Mm, okay. So I honestly don't know. All of the hours. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> All of them. All right. Cool. You ready? Yes, I am. All right. Let's do it. Here we go. I'm ready. Good. Are you ready? Hey, Mike. Mike, are you ready? Hi, David. Yes, I am ready. Cool. All right. Cool. I'm super glad to hear that, Mike. <sighs> 